We're in a series that we're calling Vital Signs, and we're looking at some diagnostic categories, not for our bodies, but for our spirits, for our souls. How do we know how we're doing spiritually? And we're teasing out over these first few weeks of 2017 some of those categories so we can measure our spiritual health and get headed in the right direction. Well, this morning we're going to do something a little different. Here's what we're going to do. Most of the time, up until this point, we've looked at a positive vital sign. But you know, when you go to the doctor, it's often the negatives that hit you, right? You have high blood pressure. You weigh too much. Your cholesterol's too high. And so we're going to look at a couple of the negatives, not so we stay there, but so we can recognize that in ourselves and hopefully move toward a positive destination. We're also going to link two things together. Do you ever notice in life that some things just naturally go together? Peanut butter and jelly, particularly strawberry jelly, right? Pretzels with hot mustard. They just go together, right? Steak sandwiches with cheese, provolone in particular. See how that works? Well, sometimes things go together when it comes to vital signs. High cholesterol, often married to high blood pressure. Obesity, often connected to diabetes. Not always, but there are connections. Well, this morning, we're going to look at two things that usually go together spiritually, but they're negative vital signs. We're going to look at complaining, not that any of you need that, and comparing. Complaining and comparing. They may seem different, but hopefully over the next few minutes, you're going to see they not only go together, they hang together, and there's a singular solution for the complaining, comparing dynamic. Let's start by thinking about complaining. You know, it's running at ep epidemic proportions in our world and probably in this room. Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, why in the world is he talking about complaining, darn it? Why does he talk about something I need and that I can use? We don't need to learn about complaining. I rest my case. I rest my case. Now, we're going to start with a little experiment. Now, we're going to kind of draw a line right down the middle here, kind of straight in front of me, and everybody, balcony and all, right on this side, all the way over to this side, I want you to think about something that you're thankful for, that you're grateful for, whether it's something about your health, your body, your family, your marriage, your kids, your finances, you know, just your perspective on it. Think of something positive, all right? Now, everybody from here on over, I want you all to think about something that you're ticked off about. Something that you're not happy about. Maybe it's your body or your health or your marriage or your kids, or, right? You got it all? Now, I want you to take like three seconds and share those on each side. Go ahead. You only get three seconds. Go ahead. Don't be shy. Come on. They all know you're complaining and you're grateful. All right, that's enough. How many of you are going to complain about this stupid experiment when the sermon's over? Now, here, here's my uh, here's my. Um, hypothesis I want to ask you. How many of you are feeling a little better right now? Anybody say, yeah, no, but that was kind of interesting, okay? How many of you are thinking, that's a terrible way to start a service? I didn't see many hands, but the ones I did see, those that are feeling a little better would be on the think of something you're thankful and grateful for, and those that are feeling a little more discouraged and wondering why you came this morning, you would be on the, comp see how that works? Complaining's powerful, right? And living with a sense of gratitude, it's powerful. Not just being around people that express one of those emotions, but being one of those 
that live in that particular perspective. Well, as we get started with complaining, you need to understand a major distinction. A major distinction. And some of you may, ne may never have thought about this before, but you need to write this down. Let me show you a verse, and I'm, we're going to talk about two G words, all right? Two G words. And there's a big dis dis discrepancy between them, a big distinction, and you need to know the difference. Here's the first one. During that long period, the king of Egypt, uh, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. See the G word? Groan. The first word you need to know is groan. Groan. Now, here's my question. To whom did the Israelites groan? Tells you in a verse. To whom did they groan? To God. To God. Do you think that that's a good thing or a bad thing? What do you think? That's always a good thing. Interesting. When you read through the Bible, groaning is good. When you come to the Psalms, the psalmist is often saying, and I'm groaning before you, pouring my heart out before God, bringing my complaints before God. Groaning is not only a good thing, groaning is commanded. In fact, there, most of the psalms are psalms of groaning or psalms of lament. There's a whole book in the Old Testament about groaning. It's called Lamentations. Usually you don't hear that read at weddings much. The whining and complaining comes after the wedding, right? Uh, the whole book about, and people are never condemned. They're never looked down on. God never scolds them and says, do not groan. We're supposed to groan. And our problem is that we don't groan enough. But remember, you groan before God. Now here's another verse that gives you the other G word. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Okay, this G word is grumble. Grumble. To whom did the Israelites grumble? Okay. Okay. Grumbling is forbidden in the Bible. Grumbling is condemned. And when you come to the New Testament, we read in Corinthians, Paul writes that many in the Old Testament, as they wandered around in the desert, they grumbled, and God took them out because of their grumbling. Grumbling is a bad thing. We should not be grumbling. So here's how it works. We groan in prayer before God. That's commanded. That's a good thing. We grumble about God to other people. We call that gossip when we're doing it with other people, right? And isn't that true? We often grumble about someone to someone else or about God to someone else rather than groaning directly to the person. So when it comes to understanding the G words, here, here's how it goes. We are to increase our groaning, going to God with our complaints and kind of arguing it out with him and laying our case honestly with sincerity and authenticity before him. We are to stop the grumbling, complaining to other people about other people and complaining to other people about God and how miserable our situation in life is. And if we would groan more, grumble less, we would be grateful. That's how the mechanism works. Now, these days I'm reading through uh, Exodus. And so uh, let me walk you through a little bit of the grumbling that happens through Exodus. We have some samples here as we go. All right, next one. So the people grumbled against Moses saying, what are we to drink? Now, here's the amazing context. God had just delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. 
They were being oppressed. They were being exploited. Life was absolutely miserable. God miraculously delivers them by a demonstration of power through miracles. God destroys the enemy, the Egyptians in the Red Sea. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. They're only a couple of days from that awesome, dramatic, miraculous deliverance. A couple days out and they're already grumbling, what are we going to drink? They're not groaning to God, God, would you please give us something to drink? God, I can't believe it. They grumble about Moses. They grumble to Moses about God. They grumble about the situation. Just a couple days out, it continues. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now look what they say. Wouldn't it have been better if we were back in Egypt? They were slaves. They were oppressed and exploited. Now they're free. Yeah, isn't it interesting how complaining distorts our perception of reality. Let me show you from the next slide how that really happens. The rabble with them began to crave other food. Again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. Now look at it, distorted perspective. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, and it was free. And the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, the garlic, but now we've lost our appetite. We never get anything but this manna. Grumbling about the lack of provision the way they want it. Now let me uh, tell you kind of what was going on. God gives them the water that they grumbled about in the verse before. They no sooner have their thirst satisfied that they say, now God, we don't have anything to eat, and God supplies manna. Now the word manna actually means what is it because they weren't exactly sure what it is. What is it? And so they named it what is it. And they'd go out and we're told in the Bible that it was kind of like a cracker with honey. Think a honey teddy graham, something like that. Not, that's good stuff, right? I mean, they get honey teddy grams outside their tent every day. God provides it. But soon they start to grumble and complain about the honey teddy grams. Now they say, well, we had meat when we were back in Egypt. And we had melons and leeks and veg. We had a lot of good things back there. All we have out here is this stupid manna. Grumbling. Um... God's not real fond of that grumbling and complaining thing. Notice they're not groaning before God. They're grumbling about God to Moses. They're grumbling about Moses and Aaron to everybody that, that they talk to. It's a constant complaint. It's a constant cesspool of grumbling, complaining, moaning, and wailing about their situation. Well, how are we going to... Uh, solve it. Well, we're going to talk about the ultimate solution in a couple of minutes. But if you, uh, if you find yourself grumbling and complaining, and I would say we live in a world where grumbling and complaining really are at epidemic proportions. And part of the reason that grumbling and complaining are at such ep epidemic proportions is because we live in a world where we're constantly told we should be dissatisfied and not content. That's how marketers sell their products. So we pick up on that culture. We begin to drink that in, and we're continually dissatisfied with our situation. So what do we do? We complain. We grumble. We whine. We complain. That, that, that's kind of what we're supposed to do, trying to change our situation. Well, let me uh, tell you, there are only two ways to reduce your complaining. Only two ways. Number one... You can change your external circumstances. Then it stopped the complaining, right? 
So, for example, if you're not married and you want to get married and you complain about that, well, you can get married. That'll stop the complaining about that. Now, if you are married and you wish you weren't married or you wish your spouse was a little different, you can change your spouse. You can set out on a spouse improvement plan, right? You can kind of draw it. Now, you never share this with your spouse, right, because that will really be a problem. Uh, and so you then begin to work out your spouse improvement plan through manipulation and nagging and haranguing and the silent treatment, right? You, 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 got a you can change your job. Complain about your boss. Complain about your salary. Well, you can change that, right? Get another job. Get another boss. Now, we're not talking about how you do all that. So you can change your external situation. If you don't want to grumble and complain about the traffic, make all the traffic disappear. You can change your external situation, and that'll de decrease your grumbling. Question, how well do you think that plan's going to work? That's never going to work. But there is another way to change your grumbling. Not by changing the external, but by changing the internal. You can change your heart. You can change your perspective. You can decrease the, gr the grumbling and complaining inside of you. And maybe here are a couple tools for you to think about how to do that. Number one, compose a gratitude list. Um, I, I challenge you, you need to do that. Do it on your phone. Do it on your iPad. Do it on a piece of paper or do it in your head. Compose a gratitude list. Think of all the things that God has graciously given us, none of which we deserve. We spend more time looking at all the things we don't have than focusing on all the good things we do have. Just take a minute and compose the little list. So when you sense grumbling, increasing, complaining, beginning to rise, compose a gratitude list. And make sure you include in the gratitude list that the king of the universe gave you his only son, so that you could be forgiven, you could spend forever with him, you could experience redemption and salvation and all those wonderful things that we talk about week in and week out. Here's my guess. If we were to spend more time composing our gratitude list and actually taking a few minutes to be grateful and thankful for all of those things, we would find our, ourselves changing on the inside and we would complain and grumble less and we would be grateful more. I read a, an interesting commentary this week, and the author says, uh, we live in a world of passwords, don't you? Uh, I, I shouldn't tell you this, you're gonna break into my office. You have to have passwords for everything, right? You have passwords for bank accounts, for your email, for all the subscriptions. I have passwords everywhere, but I'm not quite sure how to keep them. So I have all of my passwords written on, you know, business cards and are in a giant stack next to my computer. And whenever I need one, I go all the way back through the stack. Don't go into my office and look for them, all right? You won't find anything exciting anyway. Um, all these passwords. And so the person who wrote the, art, wrote, wrote the commentary said, we live in a world full of passwords, but one we often forget. The password into God's presence is thank you. That's good, isn't it? You don't have to write that down. I hope you remember that. The password into the presence of God is Father, thank you. And if you would just... Fill in the blank. Father, thank you for, you'll find and I'll find, grumbling decreasing and gratitude increasing. Let's practice the password, huh? Well, that's only the first one. Then we've got comparison. 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 How does a comparison work? 
But let me ask you if I can explain it this way. How many of you are teachers or were teachers? Raise your hands. Oh, we've got a whole herd of you. Good. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you are coaches, you know, professionally, uh, you know, recreation? How many of you ever coached or coach now sometime? Oh, good, a lot of you. All right, so I'm going to ask, I'm going to uh, paint a couple pictures for you. I want you to think about the, the rest of you can kind of eavesdrop, all right? How many of you teachers have ever had a parent come in for, you know, the parent-teacher conference? And the parents say, uh, with a smile on their face, kind of just waiting for the answer. So how's my kid doing? How's my kid doing? And you as the teacher answer honestly because you have integrity because you go to Calvary Church. Um, <laughs> so you answer that parent truthfully, and here's what you say. I'm happy to report your son is average. About 50% of the class smarter than your son. About 50% of the class dumber than your son. Your son is right in the middle of the pack, boy. I mean, your son is a normal kid. All right, teachers, now, how would that parent respond? Oh, my goodness, thank you, thank you, God, I have a normal kid. No. Okay, coaches, how many of you have ever been approached by a parent, and maybe they don't use these words, but you know this is behind it. So how's my daughter doing? How's my daughter doing? You know, games are getting ready to start. How's my daughter doing? You think and say, uh, boy, she's middle of the pack. She's average. Just a normal kid. About half the team's better than your daughter. Half the team's worse than your daughter. She's just an average soccer player. How many of those parents say, oh, thank you, coach. I'm so glad. You know, I don't get honest input. Is that what the parents say? Oh, no, 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 no. The parents want their kids to be at the top of the heap. They would rather you lie to them. Isn't that right? Let's switch it. We're those parents, though, right? When you say to your teachers, you know, the teachers of your kids, do you want to hear your kid's average? Your kid's in the average reading group. Your kid's in the average math group. Your kid has average athletic ability. We don't want to hear that. We want to hear that our kids are outstanding and our kids are far above average. In fact, that's how we often go through life. In fact, lots of studies and research have proven that basically 80 to 85% of the people think that they are in the top 10%. Now, how in the world can 85% of people be in the top 10%? Well, because we play this comparison game, but we cheat in the process. Now, comparing isn't a bad thing. We learn through comparison, don't we? We learn by comparing this box is bigger than that box. That's how you learn. A cheetah is faster than a turtle. You get a better deal at the dollar store than Tiffany's for your wife's birthday gift. We, we learn by comparison, right? See how that works? So comparison's a good thing, but then we attach our ego to it, and it becomes a bad thing. And here's how they get married together, right? We start by comparing, and pretty soon, if we're not coming out the way we want to come out in the comparison project, we then start to complain. Don't they often fit together in your life? So what may seem like two very different things, complaining and comparing, actually they are very similar, aren't they? They're connected. Well, in some ways, we're uh, in good company. Let me show you a couple of examples. I'm not sure you're aware of this, but comparing begins very early in the Bible. How many of you know what the first sin in the Bible is? Any of you know it? You don't have to yell it out. You know what it is? 
it's Adam and Eve, right? And they kind of eat what God says don't eat, right? That's the tree of authority. God says don't, they do, and that's sin, right? That's the first one. How many of you know what the second sin is? The second sin's only one chapter later. Adam and Eve do the first sin. Their son, Cain, their oldest son, he commits the second sin. Here we go. And it all begins with comparison. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Now that immediately raises questions that, you know, the Bible doesn't answer. And I know it's kind of interesting. You read through the Bible and we can come up with lots of questions to ask that the Bible doesn't answer. So it's fun to ask the questions, but here's the important thing. Make sure you focus on the questions that the Bible does answer. They must be the more important ones because they're the ones God answers. Now here's a question that the Bible doesn't answer. Why did God like Abel's offering? Why did he accept that one, but not Cain's? Well, we're not really told. It doesn't say. You know, some people say, well, maybe it was the attitude with which Abel gave it. Not quite sure. Um, maybe it's tied to the idea of firstborn, right? That becomes the principle in the Old Testament of first fruits. So here's how that principle works itself out. God says, right, as the nation of Israel is kind of growing and developing after this passage, God tells them to give an offering of the first fruits. Now, here's the interesting thing. If you're going to give an, an offering of the first fruits, you really have to have faith in God and you trust him. Otherwise, you'd give God some of the last fruits. If you give God the first fruits and the rest of the harvest doesn't come in, you have nothing. If your animal, you know, has, uh, has another animal, has, has a baby, and you give that one to God, you're trusting you're going to get another one. You may not get another one. That's what God wants. God's not after the animals. God's not after the, after the harvest. God's after our trust. And our, so maybe that's what's going on. In fact, I kind of think that we're being told that a little bit. God wants us to trust him, put our faith in him. That's kind of what Abel does. Abel gives from the firstborn of the flock. Cain gives something from the harvest. We're not sure if that's the case. Anyway, Cain's ticked off. Now, if you and I were there, knowing what we know, we'd probably say, hey, Cain, get a grip. Get a grip. God didn't say you're rejected forever. So get your act together. Figure out how, you know, you as a person, you know, harvesting things, how you can honor God, show faith in God, and trust in God. Figure out how you can do that, and then offer one of those things, and God will accept that offering, and you'll be good. But Cain doesn't do that. Cain doesn't say, what do I have to do in order to have a gift accepted? Cain gets ticked at Abel, and here's what happens. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? God's counseling him, right? If you do what is right, won't your, won't your gift be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. All right, God's saying, Cain, I know what you're feeling. You need to look inside yourself, make those changes, bring a gift and it will be accepted Cain refuses to do that. He looks outside and blames Abel for his bad feelings. They go into the field, and Cain murders Abel, thinking, well, God will have to accept my gift now. There's nobody else to give one. Yeah. See how that, it begins with comparison, though. 
You also need to know something else. Sometimes we think comparison, you know, complaining are kind of, you know, not so, not so significant. They're kind of JV kind of sins, right? You got the varsity sins, you know, adultery, um, murder. They're like varsity sins. JV sins, yeah, like grumbling. How's that a big sin? Comparing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But notice, the fruit of comparing is the varsity stuff. It begins with comparison. In in the next couple of verses, it ends with murder. Sin is crouching at the door. When we're doing that comparison game, sin is crouching at the door. That word crouching is the word for what cats do. I'm being serious, right? What does a cat, a cat crouches, right? A cat tries to make itself, as, you ever see a cat? They're gross little things, right? They, they crouch. They make themselves as small as possible, high, waiting for something unsuspectingly to go by. Then they pounce. That's what he says. When you're comparing, when you're playing that whole comparison game, sin's crouching. Sin's getting as small as it can. It's trying to go unnoticed as comparison, waiting for something to go by. And before you know it, that little sin or that little comparison is going to spring into full-blown sin. And that's why we learn right from the beginning that cats are evil. (laughs) Well, let's uh, look, look, look at one other sample from the Old Testament about comparison. Um, And there are lots of them we could look at. We only have time for two. Here's another one. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, right? So David kills Goliath. After the Israelites had returned home, uh, David had killed the Philistine. The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing. With joyful songs and with timbrels and lyres, they danced as they sang. Saul has slain his thousands And Saul was smiling ear to ear until the second line. And David has slain his tens thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They've credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. But with me, only thousands. What more can he get but the whole kingdom? Now, why is Saul so displeased? Well, first of all, it's a lame song, right? I mean, the lyrics are terrible, right? Saul is slain us down. And not only that, it was sung to the tune of It's a Small World. <laughs> David has slain his thou. That's how it went, right? And, and that's why that thing began. Now, you'll have that in your head the rest of the day, right? <laughs> that's not, not why Saul's upset. Saul's comparing, right? What? They said, I've slain thousands. But they gave David 10,000 in his column. Now think about this. Think how ridiculous this is. Saul is the king. David is a warrior who reports to him. David's victory is ultimately attributed to Saul the king. But Saul can't take it. Remember what God said all the way back in Genesis 4? When comparison is going on, sin is crouching at the door. Yeah, and it pounces in the next few chapters. King Saul, just like Cain, does everything he can to kill David. You still think comparison and complaining are JV sins? Yeah, they're often the cesspool from which all the varsity sins grow. Comparison, complaining. Well, our main focus this morning isn't 
dissecting comparison and complaining, our main focus is uh, how do we solve this stuff, right? How do we um, not change the outside? We can't change. That's what Cain and Saul are trying to do, right? They're trying to change the outside to get rid of the comparison. Then they'll stop to complain. They'll get what they want. Well, that doesn't work. How do we do it? Well, here's how we do it. Another example of comparison. Here's the solution in comparison. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. Let me tell you about John. His old John, this is John the Baptist, affectionately known as JB, not JB of Calvary, JB of the Bible. JB. John the Baptist was Jesus' older cousin. He shows up on the scene and he preaches. And do you know what he says? Repent! Because the kingdom of God is here. And he began to get a really big following. Lots of people went out to see this crazy guy, right? I mean, he ate bugs. He wore, you know, leather garments, hairy things. So he was kind of like an attraction. Didn't have TV and all back then. He went out to see John. He put on a really good show. And then he starts baptizing people. So he's preaching, talking about the kingdom of God, attracting large numbers of people. And not just that, he's baptizing people. Now, does that sound familiar? Somebody show up and preaches, attracts a big group of people, and starts baptizing. Yeah, somebody else is going to do that right after John. Jesus starts to do that. Jesus shows up. He's preaching. And he says, the kingdom of God is here. Repent. And lots of people start to be attracted to Jesus. And then some of Jesus' followers begin to baptize people. And then some of John the Baptist's followers, they start comparing, and they start complaining, and they say, hey, John, Jesus is drawing a bigger crowd than you are. You know, you better pick it up a little bit. You know, you have a little more fire and brimstone in those sermons, all right? You know, why don't you do a miracle or two? Jesus does miracles, a big crowd. Why don't you do some miracles, would you? Um, so they begin to, well, anyway, let's fast forward the clock. Here's what happens. There was a man sent from John. Sent, this all happened on Bethany, other side of the Jordan. Okay, next verse. One day John sees Jesus, and here's what he says. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we read this. Here's the solution. To this, John replied, a, per a person can receive only what's given to, given to them from heaven. You yourselves can, can, can testify that I said, I'm not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom wails and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. It's now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. So you want to play the comparison game? Here's how you play it and you solve the problem. Compare yourself to Jesus. You look at him. That's what John's doing, right? John's not focusing on the crowds. John's not focusing on, you know, all the people going to Jesus instead of him. John looks at Jesus, and he says, the Lamb of God, the Bridegroom, the Messiah, the Savior, the King. And here's what John processes. John knows who he is not. John is not the King. He's not the Messiah. He's not the Savior. He's not the Christ. He's not the Bridegroom. He's not the Lamb of God. Do you realize who you're not? Um, yesterday, as uh, Brian talked to all the men, he repeatedly said, all I can do is share my story. My story is not your story. 
Your story is not my story. You see, you get into playing the comparison game when you get the wrong story. Do you know who you're not? Just in case you don't know, I'll remind you. You're not the king. You're not the bridegroom. You're not the savior. You're not the lamb of God. You're not the redeemer. You're, not the, you're none of that, and neither am I. Secondly, remember who you are. We're in the wedding party. If you've ever been invited to be in a wedding party, your job is to make the wedding couple look good. That's your job. Your job is to point to them. When the people come over and they start saying, oh, let me get your picture. I'm going to get my picture. No, no, no. You should go take the picture with the bride and the groom. Right? Then that was me. The, pit, the wedding party focuses the attention and points, the, points everybody else to the wedding couple. That's what, the, that's what John says. I'm not the bridegroom. I'm not the savior. But here's the real key. We can't know who we're not, and we can't know who we are unless we know who Jesus is. Jesus is the king, sovereign over the details of our lives and the story that he's written that we live into. That's who Jesus is. He's the savior of the world who gave his life so we can be forgiven. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, who comes to make all things right. He's the redeemer who takes lives that have been trashed and buys them back to help them live out the purpose that they were designed for. When you know who Jesus is, you know who you're not. And all of a sudden you realize it's the greatest privilege in the world to be a member of the wedding party. It's the greatest privilege in the world to be able to point people to Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Redeemer, all those things. That's who we are. Don't forget who you're not, but always remember who he is. You want to know something? That's why we have church every Sunday. That's why we have small groups, and that's why we do ABFs, and that's why we have support groups, and that's why we have a counseling center, and that's why we have a center. That's why we do all that we do. We want to help people know who they're not, who they are, and who Jesus is. That's what it's all about. And that's also why we're launching a site in Quakertown. Same reasons. Knowing who we're not, knowing who we are, just pointers to him and knowing who Jesus is. Let me pray. Father, we give you thanks that you help us know who we're not, know who we are with the privilege that comes along with that, and know who Jesus is. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us not just to think those thoughts right now, but to see creative ways to live them out. Because if we know who we're not, and we know who we are, and we know who Jesus is, our complaining and grumbling will go down. Our groaning will go up. And comparison will be a good thing as we lift up other people and point them to him. We pray with thanksgiving and gratitude. In Jesus' name, amen.